Childish and childlike are similar words, but they have vastly different meanings. Childish epitomizes all the worst about children. Things like petulance, selfishness, irrationality, immaturity, and so on. Childlike, on the other hand, describes all the great things about children we love and and we kind of enjoy. Things like innocence, curiosity, wonder, joy, and trust. Jesus calls on his disciples to be childlike, but not childish in their faith. And while there are many characteristics of a childlike faith, the one I want us to focus on today is trust. Children typically trust their parents. They believe what their parents say, and they believe their parents can do anything in the world, especially if their parents say they can do it. What this means regarding our faith in Jesus is as disciples of Jesus, we we believe he really is everything God's word says he is. We really believe everything he said was right and it was real. We believe, we just take him at face value that what he said he can do, he can do. We don't begin to look for reasons why God's word means other than what it says. A childlike faith just trusts. We trust our God, our Savior. He is everything is he is revealed to be in here. We believe he can do everything he he says he can do in here. We believe everything this tells us about him. About him being able to set captives free, him being the unchanging one, him being able to give rest for our souls, him being able to do anything if it says it, we believe it. And we don't begin to look for reasons why things don't mean what they say. What we're going to look at today is a passage that that gives us what I believe is a a perfect example of a childlike faith. So open your Bible to Mark 5. We're going to start in verse 21. should be page 765 in your pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's word. Start in verse 21. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him and he stayed by the seashore. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came and upon seeing Jesus fell at his feet and pleaded with him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing on him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for twelve years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians, had spent all she had and was not helped at all, but instead had become worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up to the crowd behind him, touched his cloak. For she had been saying to herself, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up. 
And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power from him had gone out, turned around to the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing on you, and you say, Who touched me? And Jesus looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be cured of your disease. Now, while he was still speaking, people from the house of the synagogue official came, saying, Your daughter has died. Why bother the teacher any further? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion, people loudly weeping and wailing. And after entering, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child has not died, but asleep. And they began laughing at him. And putting them all outside, he took the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was in bed. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astonished. And he gave them strict orders that no one was to know about this. And he told them, to give her something to eat. Title of the message this morning is A Childlike Faith. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, we read a story like this and we're amazed at the power Jesus demonstrated. We're amazed at, at who he is and, and what he did. But Lord, there is a temptation within all of us to begin to immediately say, well, that was then and, and this is now. Power of Jesus isn't quite like that anymore. And, and we probably would not say he can't. We just would say he he doesn't. And Lord. We're just tired of being that way. We're tired of talking about how great our God was. And we want to talk about how great our God is. Father, we want to have a childlike faith that just believes our God and our Savior. That He is who He says He is. That He can do what He said He could do. His arm is not shortened. His power is not waned. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Work in our lives today and stir this within us. Stir within us, Lord, this simple, wondering, amazed faith. The greatness and the power of Jesus. Help us, Father, to, to take your word at face value. To embrace the idea that it is right and it is real. It is not a pie-in-the-sky ideal of how things ought to be, but it is the way things can be and, and should be. Father, whatever in us 
causes us to doubt, begin to deal with us about it today. Begin to, to purge it from our hearts and from our lives. Fill me with your spirit this morning. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to say what you want me to say, nothing more and nothing less. Let your spirit be present to move in our hearts. Take the word and plant it really deep down so it would bring forth good fruit for your glory. If there's any here today that have never trusted in Jesus, let this be the day they repent of their sins and they believe in Jesus and are saved. If there's any in here today that are sliding back in their devotion and their relationship with you, let this be the day they recommit themselves to you and become, once again, fully devoted disciples of Jesus. If there's any that are discouraged, encourage them. If there's any that are weak, strengthen them. Any that are afraid, give them courage. You know what we need, and you have the ability to meet that need, and so we ask you to do it. In Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. There are three main people in our text. Jesus, Jairus, and the unnamed woman. Jairus and the unnamed woman are in terrible situations. The unnamed woman has an issue of blood. Her issue of blood has gone on for 12 years. In verse 26, we see that she has gone to doctors of the day to try to get better, but they had... Really, she had not gotten better, but she had only gotten worse. Uh, And in fact, they had really kind of hurt her in the process of doing it. They had afflicted her and they had made everything about what was going on in her life worse. Then in verse 29, we see she was healed of her affliction. It was the blood was drying up. She felt it go away. One of my commentaries said the Greek word for affliction is often translated as whip in other places. And the implication is that her affliction was was painful. So it wasn't just that she was bleeding, but there was a great deal of pain going along with it. Pain that the doctors compounded by whatever it was they did. And then when she touched Jesus, it was all made better. She was at this point, she was broke because she had spent all of her living, it says in verse 26, on the physicians, and rather again, rather than helping her, they had made it worse. She was broke. She was in pain. As we'll see later, she was unclean because of the kind of affliction she had. And nothing, nothing in the world around her seemed to be able to make it better until she met Jesus. Then there was Jairus. Jairus was a dad with a dying daughter. We aren't told all that went on. To keep her alive. But I I feel it's safe to say he had done all he could to keep her alive. Jairus, as we'll see in a little bit, was kind of a well-to-do kind of person. He could afford doctors, uh, the best sort of doctors of the day. And yet they had not been able to help. Despite all of his efforts and all of the doctors, he must have called in. His daughter wasn't getting any better. And as we saw in the text, before he can get to Jesus and get back, she actually dies. He, He must have been hearing those words. He must have been overwhelmed with grief. We would all agree both of them were in a really bad place in their lives. They were in terrible situations. Everything was bad. Yet despite their situations being terrible, they still had faith. And I would say they had a childlike faith. And here's why. We see the childlike faith of the woman in verse 28. 
If I just touch his garments, I will get well. Now there was a there's an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah who would come and he would rise up with healing in his wings, it says. And teachers would wear kind of these flowing garments that kind of looked like wings. And so she understood that if Jesus was the Messiah, there was healing there. And if she could just touch the garment, he would be healed. Now, that's a pretty childlike faith, wouldn't you say? I mean, that's not, she doesn't have a deep theological basis for it. She can't, she hasn't really dug into the Hebrew meanings and all of the different counterpoints and points and, and all of the different ways people would interpret it. She just said, that's what it said. I bet that would apply to me. And she went to Jesus. Jairus also, I would say, had a childlike faith because of what we see in verse 22. Right, My daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so she will get well and live. He doesn't like, can you? I mean, he just, you can't. You can do it. I'm really convinced, Jesus, if you would just come and, and you touch her, I don't know what you do, I don't know how you do it, but you can make her well. That's a, a childlike faith, but we see it again. In verse 35 and 36, his daughter's dead. He's given a report. His daughter is dead. Leave Jesus alone. Jesus, I love verse 36. And I don't have time to tell you why, but I love it. It's one of my favorite verses. He hears what is spoken. Here's the message. Your daughter's dead. And he says, don't be afraid. Just believe. And come on, let's go. And Jerish doesn't say, don't worry about it, Jesus. She's dead. I mean... People don't rise from the dead. I mean, I understand it happened in the Old Testament, Elijah, people like that, but it doesn't happen now. Jesus said, just believe, come with me. And Jairus said, okay. And he went with him. And, and I call what they have a childlike faith because they had this, that they just believed that Jesus could do what he had done in other places. That's what Jairus believed. Jairus had heard what Jesus had done. And he said if he did it there, he could, he could do it here. She knew enough of the Old Testament to understand about the, the Messiah and the, the rising with healing in his wings. And she said, I, I bet that would work for me. They, they had heard of Jesus and what he could do, but, but they hadn't read any theology books. They hadn't listened to any sermons on the greatness and the power of Jesus. They just merely heard what he, he did and they said, it's real. He did it. He can do it again. These weren't flukes. It wasn't a coincidence. He didn't just happen to arrive on the scene at the time. Everybody got better all of a sudden. Jesus did it. And what he did then, he can do now and he can do in my life. He had a childlike faith. And they were correct. Jesus could do all of the things they believed he could do. So the central truth I want us to know today is a childlike faith is a powerful faith. You know, Jesus said, be it unto you according to your faith. Very often, and we'll talk about this more next time, not next week, but the week after. That very often what Jesus does in us and through us and for us is dependent upon what we believe. Now, that's not to say Jesus can't just do whatever He wants to do. He can. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He can do anything, no matter what. But very often, the way Jesus chooses to do things is to do it in response to our faith. 
And and again, as we see and we'll see next week in chapter or next time in chapter six, they didn't believe. And so he didn't do a whole lot of stuff. Their unbelief limited what he did in their midst. So when we have a childlike faith that just says, Jesus, yes, he did it. He can do it. He's awesome. That faith is a very, very powerful faith. And what I want us to look at today is not how to have a childlike faith. I don't know if I could teach that. But I want to show you some characteristics of a childlike faith from this passage. There are three characteristics of a childlike faith we see in this passage. One, a childlike faith rests exclusively on Jesus. Now, both of these people, they were completely dependent on Jesus to help them. They both knew that if Jesus did not help them, if Jesus did not do something about their situation, then nothing would change. Now, again, as we've seen, they both have probably tried other things. Jairus, again, it doesn't say he called doctors in, but it doesn't make sense that he wouldn't. Jairus was an influential member of the community. He had money. He had the ability. So why wouldn't he have? And it doesn't say it, so I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but I'm going to tell you, I believe he did. He called in the best specialist he could get of the day to come and help his daughters, and and they could not help her. And so he went to Jesus, and he knew apart from the intervention of Jesus, his daughter would die. His daughter was not just sick with a cold. She was dying to such an extent that before he could make it home, she did die. From a human perspective, Jairus' situation was, was hopeless. If Jesus did not come through for Jairus, he would lose his daughter forever. He was, his faith was resting exclusively in Jesus. The unnamed woman with the issue of blood was in the same situation. From a human perspective, her situation was hopeless. We know she went to the doctor. She had spent all she had, in verse 26, on the doctors. And not only did they not help her, they made everything worse. Jesus did not come through. If touching his garment did not bring about her healing, then there was nothing that could be done for her. Her faith was resting exclusively in Jesus. Now we would all say, and we would all agree, that our faith should rest exclusively in Jesus. But one aspect of this that can be difficult for us to accept is that it is exclusively in Jesus. And and that's really what it means, in Jesus and nothing else. We see this in this passage, right? When, When Jairus in verse 23 When he comes to Jesus, he he just asks for help. He doesn't try to to do anything to negotiate with Jesus, to explain why he needed help. Now, the reason Jesus might do that, or Jairus might do that, is verse 22 says he was a synagogue official. Other translations say he was a synagogue leader. Now, he did not tell Jesus he was a synagogue leader or a synagogue official. Even though being a synagogue official in my Bible, synagogue leader in probably yours, is an important piece of information. The leader of the synagogue was a very important person in Jewish society. As the synagogue leader, Jairus wasn't necessarily a teacher of the law, but he had other important duties. 
As the synagogue leader, it was his job to recruit the teacher for the Sabbath day. This means not only was it his job to find and select a teacher, but no one got to teach in the synagogue unless he specifically chose them and gave them the okay. He was responsible for the general care and the oversight of the synagogue. He supervised the synagogue's day school that instructed the next generation of teachers of the law. He took the money given to the synagogue and he distributed the alms to the poor. He made sure the scrolls containing God's word were cared for and were protected. He made sure the building was properly maintained. And he generally just sort of encouraged the people who attended his synagogue to obey the law and to trust to love the Lord. Synagogue leader was a very important man in Jewish society. However, when he went to Jesus for help, he didn't go to Jesus and tell them how important he was in the town he was from. He didn't tell him he was a leader in the synagogue. He didn't tell Jesus how much money he distributed to the poor every week. He didn't tell him how much care he gave to the law and the scrolls of the law every week. He didn't tell him how he was careful about what teachers he allowed to teach to ensure they taught accurately and rightly God's word. He didn't tell him how diligent he was to keep God's law himself. All he did was go to Jesus and say, My daughter is at the point of death. Please come lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. But he didn't just say that. He, he fell at his feet, verse 22. He, he knelt before Jesus. This was a, a sign of submission. You never knelt before someone unless they were of much greater statute or stature than you were. And in Jewish society, there weren't many people of a greater stature than Jairus. For Jairus to kneel publicly before Jesus, it was huge. He was humbly submitting to Jesus and asking for his help based upon the fact Jesus helped people. Even his request is not pompous or flowery. He just says, I believe you can help. Please come help. His faith was resting exclusively on Jesus. We see the same dynamic with the woman who had the issue of blood. She had suffered for 12 years. The doctors couldn't help. She was broke. She was made worse by what the doctors had done to her. Her affliction hurt. But when she went to Jesus and asked for help, she didn't seek to work out a deal with Jesus based upon her suffering. She didn't say, listen, Jesus, I, I've suffered a lot for 12 years. I was a faithful Jew prior to getting sick. And I, I've been as faithful as I could since then. I've not whined. I've not complained. I've not even really questioned God as to why this had to happen to me. So the least you could do is go ahead and, and heal me now. She didn't do any of that. She just believed if she touched his garment, he could heal her. And then when Jesus acknowledged her, she came and she fell down before him and she just told him everything. Her affliction, her faith, what she had done, what happened when Jesus or when she had touched Jesus. She also had a humble submission Fully confident Jesus could do what she believed he could do. What the word of God had said he could do. Her faith was resting exclusively in Jesus. 
I'm afraid many people in our day go to Jesus convinced something about them makes Jesus realize why they deserve His help. There's something special about them. And because of this, Jesus ought to help them. could be they're influential in society. Because I'm important in society, Jesus, it really look good for you to help me. Perhaps they're really active in the things they do. They do a lot of good works. Jesus, I do a lot of, of really good works. You, you ought to help me because look at how I've earned it through what I've done. It could even be because of some horrible incident that's happened in their lives. They, they believe that Jesus owes them one because of what they've gone through in their lives. And for us, if our mindset resembles any of those things, then our faith is not resting exclusively in Jesus. And instead of having a childlike faith resting exclusively in Jesus, we... We basically have faith in ourselves and our merits. We believe Jesus can, but we believe he ought to because of something about us, who we are, what we've done, what we've experienced. We're not going to Jesus based upon his mercy and his grace. We're going to Jesus based upon our perceived merit. And this will never work with Jesus. This will never work with anything we may go to Jesus about. A a hard fact for us to accept. None of us ever have any merit before Jesus. Our only merit is Jesus and who he is and what he has done for us on the cross. Our, Our merit is never based upon us. And this is true no matter how like faithfully we live for Jesus. Let me show you this. This is a hard passage. This is Jesus talking. Now which of you, having a, a slave plowing or tending a sheep, will say to him, after he comes in from the field, come immediately and recline at the table and eat. Right? So here's the He's telling them, None of you have a servant, and after they've gone out in the field and done the things you've told them to do, you're gonna bring them in and say, Here, you have a seat and I'm gonna serve you because boy, you're an awesome servant. He says, no, that's not what's going to happen. Instead, you're going to say, prepare me something to eat. Then you're going to get ready. Go get ready to serve me. Serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you can eat and drink. And he doesn't thank the slave because of the things which were commanded, does he? Right? So why not? Because the servant had just done what was his job to do. So what's the point of this story? The next part. So you too, when you do all the things which were commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we ought to have done. <laughs> That's rough. I mean, that you talk about an assault on the pride. You and I, we're the servant in the story. Jesus is the master. And after we do all the things he has commanded us to do, we still have no more merit before him than we had before. Because in the end, all we have done is what we ought to have done. We've only done our duty before the one who has died for our sins and risen again. 
No matter what we do, no matter what we experience, no matter who we are, we never put Jesus in our debt. Now, this truth may be convicting and it may be angering if we're arrogant. Because if we're arrogant, the very idea we don't deserve special treatment for some perceived reason infuriates us and is likely an intolerable idea. This is why people say, me and Jesus, we have our own deal. But they don't, not really. They think there's something special about them. Jesus owes them, so he will work out a separate deal with them that's different than what he works out with the rest of the world. But while this this truth can be convicting and angering if we're arrogant, it's really comforting and encouraging if we're self-aware. Because if we're self-aware, we're aware of our sins and our flaws and our failures. And the idea of being able to come to Jesus exclusively because of his merit and not our own is beautiful and liberating. So I guess a question for all of us is how do we respond to the idea we never have any merit before Jesus? Does it anger us? Does it make us just like that's not right, that's not real? If so, that make no mistake, that says something about our character. It says something about our hearts. Is it liberating? Is it encouraging? That also says something about our character and our hearts. A, a childlike faith is a powerful faith. But it's not really a childlike faith unless it's resting exclusively on Jesus. So a childlike faith rests exclusively on Jesus. Secondly, a childlike faith risks ridicule for Jesus. Now, the way Mark's account reads, Jairus was there when Jesus arrived on this side of the sea. And when he arrived, he he fell at Jesus' feet and began to ask this help. But, But there was a large crowd there, right? That's what we see. In verse 24, and he went off with him and a large crowd was following him. The large crowd didn't show up because Jairus, they were already there. So there was a large crowd of people and Jairus went up in front of a large crowd, fell at the feet of Jesus. That's a humbling statement all by itself to to fall at someone's feet and, and essentially plead for their help. But it's even more so if this crowd is like every other crowd where Jesus went. You know, when Jesus went places, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and the scribes, they were always a part of the crowd. But they weren't there to listen to Jesus, to learn from Jesus. They had already decided about him. They didn't like him. And they were looking for a reason to reject him. That's all they were doing. They would listen to him and say, I don't think that was right. No, that's not exactly worded right. And they were always trying to find a way to condemn him. But also part of what they were doing is, they were watching who would go to Jesus. Because... John's Gospel, it tells us those who would affirm Jesus, those who would go to Jesus, they would be put out of the synagogue. That's a big threat. That's a powerful thought in their day. So Jairus comes up to this crowd of people and he falls down at the feet of Jesus asking for his help. By doing this, he he risks ridicule from the crowd. He risks ridicule from any of the religious leaders who might be there. He, he risks rejection 
from the religious leaders because he does this. He, in many ways, he risks his job and his livelihood because of this. Now look at verse 38. They came to the house, the synagogue official. There was a commotion, weeping and wailing. Now, mourning in the Jewish world was elaborate. They would have flute players in the crowd for mourning. Uh, Even the poorest of people would have maybe one professional mourner present. And and the mourner's job was to, what's it say there? Weeping and wailing loudly. That's kind of what they were paid to do. Make sure everybody's sad because I died. Paying y'all to come and scream. And that's what they did. Because he was somewhat important. It would have been more than one person. There was a lot of people. And so Jesus walks into this crowd where there's flutes playing. There's people wailing and weeping. And it's a loud commotion. And it's a hysterical, chaotic atmosphere. And Jesus walks in and asks them, Why they're making a commotion in verse 39. Because the girl is not dead, but asleep. But they know. They know she is dead. They know what dead is. They know the difference between somebody being dead and someone being asleep. And Jesus says she's not dead. She's just asleep. And they they laugh at Jesus. Uh, One of the other gospel accounts said they laugh him to scorn. What an idiot. Oh my gosh. He is a moron. But Jairus is there with Jesus. What are they saying about the the synagogue leader who is bringing this man saying his dead daughter is not dead but asleep? What are they saying to the fact Jairus isn't joining with them? Do you think they're laughing at Jairus too? Oh my gosh, his grief has sent him off the rails. He's he's gone over the edge. He's oh, we better I bet he's had a nervous breakdown. He's had a hysterical moment here. He risked the ridicule. Jesus Puts, him, puts all of the people out and takes the mom, the dad, and his companions to go where the child was. Jairus risks ridicule by not saying, Jesus, that's too much. Come on, just, you go ahead and leave. She's dead. It, it, it's over. But Jairus wasn't afraid of the ridicule. He was willing to risk the ridicule because he believed Jesus. The woman also risked ridicule. Her issue of blood would have made her unclean. Therefore, she would have been separated from all normal social interactions. She would not be allowed to go to the synagogue to worship. She would not be allowed to go to the marketplace. She would not uh, be allowed to really do anything around other groups of people. For the entire time of her sickness, which was 12 years, she was unclean. Anyone she touched would be unclean. Anything she sat on would be unclean. Anyone who touched what she sat on would have to wash their clothes, take a bath, and be considered unclean until evening. Her uncleanness was so serious, she could not. It was against the law for her to be in a crowd of people like this, lest she contaminate them and make them unclean. She had essentially been treated as a leper for the last 12 years. So she exposed herself to the ridicule of the people when she walked into town. She exposed herself to the ridicule when she walked into the crowd. If anyone in town realized she was unclean, they would have been angry. If anyone in the crowd realized she was unclean, there could have been serious consequences. She exposed herself to 
ridicule when she reached out to touch Jesus. First, because he was a teacher of the religious law and touching him would have made him unclean. And if that had happened, that would not have gone well for her at all. Secondly, because she believed touching him would heal her. Believing that just reaching out and touching his garment is going to make her well. If that doesn't work, she is in bad trouble. All her actions, all she did, exposed her to ridicule. But she did not care. She wasn't afraid of the ridicule because she believed Jesus. So a question for us is, are we more concerned about what people will say about us or think about us than we are about getting to Jesus. I mean, if we're more afraid of what people might say or people might think or how people might respond, we don't have a childlike faith because a childlike faith risks the ridicule for the sake of Jesus. Let me ask you it this way. How many times... Have you felt convicted by the Holy Spirit about something in church but didn't respond during the invitation because you were afraid of what people might think or say? Now, I don't just mean coming forward, although that could definitely be a part of it. Many times we're afraid to respond in any sort of a public way at all. We won't come forward. We won't raise our hands. We won't do anything to publicly acknowledge our need for Jesus and His help in that moment because... We're more afraid of the possible ridicule than we are desperate for Jesus. A question, does this fear of ridicule, does it hinder us from experiencing more of Jesus and more of his power in our lives? Do we miss out on something Jesus could do and would do and maybe even wants to do? In us and through us and for us because we're more afraid of potential ridicule than we are desperate for him. I think if we read this story, I think the answer is yes. Because consider what happened here. Jairus went to Jesus and asked for help in this exclusive, risking ridicule kind of way. And he received it. This woman went to Jesus with this exclusive and risking ridicule kind of way, and she received it. Their their lives were, were changed. Their lives were made different because of what Jesus had done. But how many people in this crowd were helped on this day? Two. Jairus and the woman with blood. What are the odds those are the only two who had needs on that day? Isn't it unlikely? People went, I mean, we have seen in chapter after chapter that Jesus goes places and the crowds come to him. They need teaching. They need healing. They need demons cast out. They need help. They they need a lot of things and they come to Jesus for them. So the odds that there was nobody in this crowd but these two people who needed help is, is very unlikely. So why are these two people the only two people Jesus helped? Because they are the only two people who had a childlike faith at this point. 
They're the only two people whose faith was resting exclusively on Jesus. They were the only two people who would risk the ridicule to reach out and touch him, to fall at his feet and ask for his help. I am 100% convinced there is no way to be a faithful, devoted disciple of Jesus without potentially exposing ourselves to the ridicule of unbelievers and maybe even the ridicule of those who would profess faith in Jesus. We may, we may face ridicule because we're outspoken about our faith in Jesus. We believe He is who He says He is. We believe He died and He rose again. And he can do what He said He does the same yesterday and forever, day and forever. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Him. We may face ridicule for being outspoken about those truths. We may face ridicule because we believe God's Word is true. It's right. These things actually happened. It's real. If this is really the way we're supposed to live, the way we can live, that when it talks about the Spirit filling us and empowering us and being holy and, and, all, and being filled with love and joy and peace and long-suffering, that, that's real. It really can't happen. We believe all of this stuff. We might face ridicule for that. We might face ridicule because we believe prayer makes a difference. There's a God in heaven who hears our prayers, bend down his ear and listens and, and moves in response to prayer. We may face ridicule because our faith motivates us to live a certain way. Things we won't do that other people do. Things we do that other people won't do. And others think that's just stupid. We may face ridicule because we believe in a God who can do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or imagine. We may face ridicule because we do believe Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We may face ridicule because we think Jesus is calling us to do something specific in our lives. There's, the Lord is calling me. This is what He wants me to do. There are some who would ridicule us for believing Jesus wants us to do something specific. We may face ridicule for any number of things. But at some point, living out our faith in Jesus will expose us to potential ridicule for Jesus. And in that moment, it will reveal whether we have a childlike faith or not. You know, again, a child, they don't care if they sound stupid, do they? If they believe it, this is what's right, they'll say it. You can tell them that doesn't make any sense. They're, they're sold on it. Childlike faith is willing to risk the ridicule of the crowds and the masses and the people because we believe Jesus. A childlike faith is a powerful faith. But it's not a childlike faith unless we're willing to risk ridicule because of our faith in Jesus. So a childlike faith rests exclusively on Jesus. A childlike faith risks ridicule for Jesus. And then lastly, a childlike faith brings glory to Jesus. Absolutely no one could take any credit for anything that happened in this passage other than Jesus. It wasn't the doctors who healed the woman. They had failed her. And they had made her worse. It wasn't the doctors that helped Jairus. They had failed him. And she had died anyway. Matthew's account tells us the parents went out and spread news about Jesus throughout the land. 
They just couldn't help but tell people about the good things the Lord had done for them. And Jesus' fame spread throughout the countryside because of what He did in response to their childlike faith. When you and I have a childlike faith, Jesus will always be glorified by it. And I believe there are two reasons and two ways Jesus is glorified through our childlike faith. First is His work in us, His work on on our behalf. Childlike faith is a powerful faith. Those who have a childlike faith, they experience far more of what Jesus can do in us and through us and for us than other people do. And as people begin to see these things happening in us and through us and for us, others kind of glorify God on our behalf. Wow, that's amazing what God is doing in your life. It's amazing the changes I'm seeing. Wow, man, you're you're really changed. You're really different. These things are really happening. And Jesus is glorified. If for nothing else, we tell them, well, Jesus is really doing this and He's really working in me. And He gets the glory from that. And second... Jesus is glorified through our service to Him. Right? When we have a childlike faith, I mean, childlike faith didn't just sit down on the sidelines. They, they, they did stuff. They got up and they went out and they told and they sought Jesus. And Jesus would be glorified. When we have a childlike faith, we're going to believe things like be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We're going to do that because we believe the next part which says... For our labor in the Lord is never in vain. We're going to do the part in Galatians where it says, Do not be weary in well-doing because we believe the next part of it where it says, For we will reap a harvest of blessing in due time if we faint not. We will share the gospel with others because we believe that there's inherent power in the gospel and that God saves people as the gospel is shared. We, We will serve others in Jesus' name because we believe what he says is that will happen in response to that will happen. And as we do these things, Jesus will be glorified in us. Everything in this passage. Well, let me say this. Childlike faith is a powerful faith. But if, it, the, if what happens doesn't bring glory to Jesus, it's not a childlike faith. If it points to us, if it glorifies us, if it lifts us up on a pedestal, it's not a childlike faith. The point is to glorify Jesus, not us, not, not ever. And so if it elevates us, if it makes others think amazing things about us, that we are awesome, it's not a childlike faith because a childlike faith elevates Jesus and glorifies Jesus. Now everything in this passage happened because they had a childlike faith, and they acted on it. There was a multitude, and yet Jesus only helped the two people, despite whatever else may have been going on in the crowd. And it wasn't because He didn't care for them. It was because they didn't act on a childlike faith as these two people did. Whatever the need in our lives today, Jesus can meet it. Jesus can save the lost. If you're here and you have never repented of your sins and believed in Jesus, He can save you. 
Jesus can restore the prodigals. If you have been a disciple of Jesus and you've turned away and kind of strayed, He can restore you. He will restore you. If life's been hard and your heart has been broken because of it, Jesus can bind up the broken hearts. If you're enslaved to sin, to an addiction, to a false belief, Jesus can set you free because Jesus sets the captives free and those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. If you're a disciple of Jesus and you just want more and to be more like Jesus, Jesus can sanctify the saints. Whatever the need we have, our Savior can meet it. He can do it. He can take care of it. Do we believe this? Do we believe this in a way that's exclusive? Jesus can do it because of Jesus. Do we believe it in a way that would cause us to risk ridicule because we believe it? Do we believe it in a way that would bring glory to Jesus as it happens in our life? Do we believe it enough to act on our faith, to do something because we believe Jesus can meet this need in our lives? Let's not miss out on all Jesus can do, wants to do, and and will do in us and through us and for us because we refuse to rest our faith exclusively on Jesus. Because we refuse to risk ridicule for the sake of Jesus. Because we want the glory and not Jesus. Today have a childlike faith and reach out to Jesus. Touch the hem of His garment experience what no one but Jesus can do in our lives today. Let's stand.